Welcome to the smart business revolution. 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 Do you want a revolution? You say you want a revolution? Revolution. The revolution. It's going on right now. Welcome to the Revolution, the Smart Business Revolution podcast, where we ask today's most successful entrepreneurs to share the tools and strategies they use to build relationships and connections to grow their revenue. Now, now, your host for the Revolution, John Corcoran. All right. Welcome, everyone. John Corkin here. I am the host of the show. And for those who are new to listening to this program, go check out some of our past interviews. We've got all kinds of smart CEOs, founders, and entrepreneurs of all kinds of companies ranging from Netflix to Quicken to uh, we had Grubhub the other day, Kinko's, YPO, EO, Activation Blizzard, LendingTree. Most of the co-founder Rise25, where we help connect B2B business owners to their ideal prospects. And my guest here today is David Barnett, and he studied business uh, in school. And for a number of years now, he's been helping businesses to buy and sell. So basically navigate the marketplace of, of buying and selling. Um, he's also a prolific writer. He's written a number of different books. I'm just going to list a number of them. Invest Local, A Guide to Superior Investment Returns in Your Own Community, Credit Card Advantage, Franchise Warnings, How to Sell My Own Business, Smarter Than a Startup. Uh, I think I mentioned all of them there. I might've left one or two out. So he does a lot of thinking, talking, speaking about buying and selling businesses. And it's a really relevant topic right now uh, with the economic, bit of an economic downturn we're experiencing right now coming off the tail end of COVID at the end of 2022 here. And now uh, David works with uh, entrepreneurs around the world, helping them to buy, sell, and organize their small and medium-sized businesses. So really relevant for a lot of our listeners here. And of course, this episode brought to you by Rise25, where we help B2B businesses to get clients referrals and strategic partnerships with Done For You Podcasts and content marketing. And if you have any questions about that, go to our website, rise25.com, and you can learn all about it. All right, David, we were chatting beforehand, and I partly grew up in Massachusetts, had some snowy winters there, not as snowy, I'm sure, as you in uh, growing up in Canada. Um, and I had many a school day where I had to go out and shovel my parents' driveway, and I wasn't savvy enough, didn't have the entrepreneurial chops to go out and offer to do it for money to the neighbors. But you were and so successful that you actually owned your own snowblower by yeah. age 13, which those things aren't cheap. So that's really impressive. So what age did you start actually doing it for money? Did you go around just knocking the, on the neighbor's doors and say, hey, you want me to do this for you? Well, I think I think I used flyer delivery route profits to buy that snowblower, and I so remember, even before uh, I remember how much I paid for it. It was eighty dollars. Wow! And I mean, this would have been nineteen eighty seven ish. So yeah, that was a lot of money. Seven eighty eight. So it was used, and uh, it didn't work very well. But my dad grew up on a farm, and he could do anything, right? Because farmers have to learn all the skills. Yeah. And so we went and checked it out and it was, you had a hard time starting it with the pull cord. And, and he said, yeah, we should get this. And then it took him like, I don't know, an hour to get it running like, like really well. And then I used that thing for three winters and I had a, a regular list of customers and I would go around after every snowstorm and the going rate back then was 20 bucks to get your per driveway. driveway. Yeah. So nice you can see ROI. Like, the, the return on investment was yeah. incredibly good. Uh, and so I did well with that business. Yeah. Yeah. And did you ever get to the point of hiring other kids in the neighborhood to do it? 
Okay. I never, I never did. I never, I never got to that level. It, it was going to take me another like 10 years before I got to the point where I was employing other people. Yeah. Yeah. But um, nice ROI on that. That's really impressive. And that wasn't your only uh, entrepreneurial endeavor in college. You got this idea to take your university logo and put it on a Zippo light, lighter, yeah. right? And yeah. tell me about that. That was the 90s. So of course, a lot more people were, were smoking cigarettes yeah. back then. And uh, I, there was a, for a brief period of time where it was very fashionable for the people that I knew to have these Zippo lighters. And a lot of them would have these different logos and crests on them. So I contacted the Zippo company. I believe they were in Michigan. And I, I called them and got the pricing and I sent them my, my university's crest. And I said, I want a hundred of them with this on it. And as soon as they got it, they kind of looked at it and said, hmm, I think this looks like a copywritten image to me. So they, so they got back to me and they said, look, we need, we need to see evidence that you have permission to use this. And so I went to the school administration and they had a policy about their logos and imagery. And it basically said that you know only members of the university could use the logo. And as a student, I was a member of the university. And then it said for any commercial purposes, they actually had a licensing policy. And so I was able to pay a percentage of my cost to Zippo. I paid that to the university to officially license the logo. And I had a hundred of them made. And I it must, sold- have been, it must have been hard, a hard sell because it's not like people working in academia are like, ooh, how can we make money off of this logo? You know, was it was it was it a hard sell? Do you remember? It wasn't hard at all because no. because they you're right, they don't have the time or inclination to go looking for ways to make money off of their logo. So when people show up at the front door wanting to pay, they're more than happy to take the money. Right? Okay. Yeah. So, so I paid the university the fee and then they wrote me a letter and they gave me a, you know, a really high quality copy of the image that I could send down to the Zippo people. And then I got this box of 100 lighters. And here's the fun part is I sold about half of myself just directly, you know, in the dorms and things like that. And uh, when I got to the end, I'm like, what am I going to do with these? I ended up wholesaling the balance of my inventory to the university's own bookstore. Nice. <laughs> so, so not only did I license the logo from them, I became a supplier to the university. <laughs> and then they sold the balance of them out of their, out of their um, uh, case with the fancy pens and everything. Nice, nice. I love that. Yeah. Um, now you go, you studied uh, business in school and you say that it took you 10 years to unlearn what mm-hmm. you were taught in business school. I've always felt, I went to law school and I always felt like, you know, now I feel like ah, I kind of wish I'd gone and gotten my MBA instead or studied business. I was an English major in undergrad. Um, so tell me why I shouldn't be envious that you went and got a business degree. Well, you know, I know today that there are some more innovative programs about entrepreneurship and running businesses. But back in those days in the nineties, I mean, you went to university and you studied business so that you could become a middle manager at general electric or one of these other big fortune 500 companies. And so we would sit around, you know, examining case studies of whether, you know, Westinghouse should enter the Saudi Arabian market or something like that. And I was just thinking to myself half the time, like I am never going to be sitting anywhere where I'm making a decision like this. So you knew you weren't attracted to working in big business at that point. Yeah. I knew that my, my heart and my interests were in the businesses that I saw every day when I was driving around, you know, in Mm. town. And I would, I would sit in, I would sit in uh, different businesses or visit different businesses. And I would, I would immediately see the things that were not efficient. I would say, you know what, they could do this better. They could do this better. I remember once going to a drive-in, and in my mind, the way they were preparing food, that the concession was very inefficient. 
And like a lot of drive-ins around that period of time, they still had poles in the ground where the speakers once would have been back in the 60s or what have you. Yeah. And of course, they were using FM radio at that time. But I thought to myself, hey, wait a minute. If they put numbers on the poles, people could place an order and then they could come back and deliver it to your car. And you know, today, that same drive-in could get an app that you could use on your smartphone. You could sure. order food right to the poll number, right? And so mm-hmm. my mind's always thinking about better ways to do things, innovative ways to do things. Um, and so I really lucked out, John, when I graduated university because I started a business with a, with a partner. He left town to chase a girl somewhere. Um, and I ended up using that experience in that business. That was a publishing business to get myself a sales job with the Yellow Pages. And that, to me, was the golden period because my job- Because you're selling to businesses, right? I had to go and visit all those businesses that I was interested in and talk with them about how they made money, what kind of customers they wanted. And it allowed me to create, uh, you know, develop knowledge about all of these different kinds of businesses that we see every day when we're in our towns and cities. Yeah. Now, I don't know what years you were working for the Yellow Pages, but- not exactly a thing anymore. Well, I started there in um, the fall of 90, 97 or 98. And I was there until 05 or oh, 05. Wow. So, so, so a, lot, a lot of I, technological change in that period of time. Yeah. When, when I left there, if you typed plumber into Google, you would, no matter where you were in the world, you'd get a plumber in California. Uh, they hadn't figured out local searching, but you could tell it was coming. And so it, the writing was on the wall, and that was one of the reasons why I decided I needed to make a move. And I left Yellow Pages to go start a business of my own with a partner. And after about a year and a half, I realized I didn't. What, my heart wasn't in it. That was the first time I got involved in the sale of a business, and it was so it was a business that I started. I ended up selling it, and I learned a lot, but I I still didn't get into the world of business brokerage at that time. I, I sold that, that was business. Your first business I, yeah, I got into finance brokerage. So if you recall around that time, um, we're leading into the, the great financial crisis. Yeah. So I was brokering commercial debt, um, operating leases, factoring facilities, things like that to businesses that needed money to grow. And that was an interesting business because it opened my eyes to a lot of the problems that some of these small businesses have with respect to money. I started to meet people at that time who were looking for money to buy businesses that were already operating. And when I saw what was going on with those people, and and largely it was very bad deal-making being put together by intermediaries that didn't really understand what they were doing, that's when I realized there was a gap in my local market for business brokers. And then the financial crisis hit, which basically put half my sources of capital out of business. You know, mm. within a few months, a bunch of those people closed down. And that's when I made the move. I decided to join one of the big uh, franchise names in business brokerage because it gave me access to training. Um, and I became the owner of a local business brokerage office. And over the next three years, I helped sell 36 other companies for other people. Eventually, though, I had to get out of that too, because John, business brokerage is really exciting and it's a really terrible business to be in because it's entirely driven by contingent revenues. Mm. And so- You you don't get paid if the business doesn't sell, yeah. Exactly. And so one of the first businesses I listed for sale was a fried chicken franchise. And the last business I sold was that fried chicken franchise. 
I had that file for three years. Over the three-year period, I sold it three times. But the first two times didn't complete because of something that happened um, usually by someone who wasn't the buyer or the seller. It was either the banker or an attorney or an accountant or somebody would bring something up and the deal would go askew. Mm. So I had to go through the whole thing three times before it finally sold. Mm. And then I got my paycheck. And I remember the seller, he was like, wow. He's like, that's a big check. And I was like, his name was Tony. I said, Tony, the person who works for you at the front counter has earned more money since I've met you. <laughs> right? And, and, but it, it highlighted the fact that, you know, you know, people look at something like business brokerage and they go, wow, you know, you, you sell a business, you get a big commission check. It's very easy, but it's not you. If you want to draw the analogy to real estate, you know, in real estate, you have a realtor that finds a buyer. You have an appraiser that determines the value of the home. You've got a mortgage broker that helps the buyer get the financing. In the world of business brokerage, we're operating in a confidential method. We don't want it to become public that a business is for sale. And so the broker has to evaluate the business to figure out what it's likely going to sell for to recommend an asking price. They then have to find the buyer and then work with the buyer and help arrange the financing. So I would do analogously wearing a lot of hats. Of those, all three yeah. of those jobs that are in yeah. real estate, and without the, without the benefits that you get from you know the real estate markets of being able to broadcast it publicly. Yeah, uh, and and you know people that are in the real estate market, they're doing many more transactions a lot more quickly. I was you know it, it sounds when I say thirty six businesses over three years, it sounds like one a month, but that's not the case. The reality is, in all three of those years, and even if you looked at the financials, you would have seen growth every year. But what the financials wouldn't tell you is that in each of those years, I had a drought between seven and nine months in each year with no wow. closings. And so all of the overhead, all the bills are still coming out of your pocket without the big commission checks landing. Yeah. And then when they do land, well, the first one that lands just fills in holes. It just mm. pays off your credit cards and your lines of credit. And then if you have one land in your account that gives you a big balance, well, you're afraid to spend the money. Because mm -hmm. then you're worried about when the next one's going to come in. Mm -hmm. And so I had young children at the time. It was, you know, put me in a situation where I, I struggled to create any kind of budget for the household because the, the flow of funds was so inconsistent. And uh, all the gray hair that you see on the sides of my head come from that <laughs> period that. of time in my life. <laughs> I want to ask you, I want to ask you, uh, you know, I want to give a shout out to um, one of, we've got a couple of clients that, that buy and sell businesses. Um, Joe Valley of uh, Quiet Light um, is one of them. And um, he, like you, creates a lot of content. Um, and he's talked a lot about the importance of trust. And mm -hmm. when it comes to buying and selling businesses, it's oftentimes the seller's most valuable asset of their lifetime. They put 10, 20 years, however long uh, of effort into this thing. Um, they really needed to succeed. And so you have put a lot of effort and energy into creating content, putting it out there, uh, you know, which helps to build trust, of course. It helps to put good um, uh, knowledge out into the universe. Talk a little bit about the importance of doing that uh, and, and why you do it. Yeah. So, so I left the business brokerage industry at the end of 2011 and I went into banking because of this crazy cash flow roller coaster. And what started to happen was people would start to call me because they were working on deals and they were given my name here in the local area. And they said, I need help with this deal. And at first I would tell people, like, I'm not in that business anymore. I don't do it anymore. But 
eventually, you know, I realized, hey, these people need my help and I have the knowledge and, and I'm able to help them. I should be doing something. So I said, like, I don't work for commissions anymore. I guess I could charge you like some kind of consultant. And people were eager to employ me. They wanted my help to help them navigate these deals, whether they were on the buy side or the sell side. And so eventually what I realized was that there was a demand for this different kind of model. So not a business broker, but still somebody who helps people with the purchase and sale of a business. And so the content became about meeting the people who need my help. And so creating the YouTube videos, writing the books, appearing on, on podcasts like yours is to get out there and to tell people that this kind of service is available and to direct people to things like my YouTube channel where I answer questions from people that are out there working on these deals every week. And, and a lot of people find me in that way. So they'll, they'll be looking at a business opportunity and they'll have a question about deal making and they'll type that into Google and they'll end up finding a video I made maybe even years ago that answers that specific question. Isn't that and the best? They, That's the best. <laughs> and then they start, you know, and, and when you, when you go looking for some content like that, and then you you say, hey, this is directly applicable to what I'm looking for. Of course, then the the YouTube algorithm suggests more videos, often yeah. from the same creator. And then I'll get emails from people who say, you know, David, I'm looking at buying this business. I've just spent the last week watching your videos, uh, and this is what I'm doing, and this is what I want to help with, and what does that look like? And so, if you want to think about the sales cycle, we've often seen those images that show, you know, the process of making a sale. There's the rapport building you know, exploring the needs of the customer, you know, uh, crafting a solution, presenting it, objection handling, you know, whatever model you're looking at. The, the online content allows you to skip the rapport building or rather automate the rapport building mm -hmm. because the people out there are able to really get a you know, feel for who you are and how you operate and what kind of person you are. And, and so it, it, it makes the whole process go more quickly uh, for me, when I meet someone who's a prospective client to, to make the sale and, yeah. and to agree and, and start working on the project. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I started doing this uh, 12 years ago when I was practicing law for my practice. And you know, mm. it's, it's been such an amazing tool. And it's great to put good content and, and answer questions out there in the universe. Um, let's, let's dig a little bit more down into what you were just talking about, which is kind of the process of buying and selling businesses after you are working with the client. Uh, and particularly to like, ways of structuring a business sale that, that protects really both sides. So talk a little mm -hmm. bit about some of the ways that you approach that structure, buying and selling businesses in the process. Yeah. So, you know, for people that own a business, uh, particularly if it's a profitable, successful business that's been around for a long time, then these are the businesses that people want to buy, right? Established track record, good earnings history, well-known in the marketplace. That owner is going to know everything there is to know about that business, right? Mm -hmm. They've been mm -hmm. in it. Mm -hmm. The buyer, on the other hand, does not know everything about that business. There is a definite information advantage on the part of the seller. And so the buyer's number one fear or concern is that there's some kind of misrepresentation or error or lie that's, that's misstating the value of the business, misstating the earnings or, or what have you. And so the buyer will come along and say, I like this business. The seller will make certain representations. This is my sales. This is the money I'm earning, et cetera. And they'll negotiate what they think the value of that business is. The buyer's worry is what if it's not real? What if it's not true? And the solution to that, for the most part, is this process we call due diligence. Now, 
in the world of big businesses, when you're going to buy another business, you do due diligence and you bring in an army of people that investigate every little thing. And they try to uncover every problem that might exist and they verify every bit of information. And as you well imagine, that army of people is very expensive, right? If we're going to look at a very small business, one that does a couple million in sales that might earn a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash flow, we're certainly not going to invest a hundred thousand dollars in due diligence to examine that business. It just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So what then is the solution, right? The solution is to come up with some kind of middle ground where the due diligence process is a more express process. So we're looking for the basic things, but at the end of the day, we want to be able, we want to have to rely on some of the stuff that the seller is telling us, but we want to tie the seller into accountability. And the way that we do that is through some device like a seller financing note, which is subject to offsets. If it turns out after the transaction occurs, that there was some sort of material misrepresentation. Now, that balances the knowledge gap, right? Because now the buyer can say, well, if I don't know 100% of everything going on, but I have this backdoor mechanism for adjusting the price after the fact, I'm now willing to deal with a little bit of gray or unknown, right? Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. I know that I'm protected by this, this mechanism. If the seller won't do any amount of seller financing, it, it sends a, a big signal to that buyer, which is- Red flag maybe, right? Well, yeah. it, it's, it's either this guy knows there's a problem or this person doesn't believe I'm going to be a capable operator, right? Mm. Because, it, it, because if he, a seller doing seller financing is also wearing a banker hat in that moment mm. because they're, they're making a judgment on the buyer. They're trying to figure out, is this person got what it takes to run this business? Mm -hmm. if they don't think you can run the business. They're not going to lend you money, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, in my opinion, if the seller doesn't think you can run the business, you may want to buy into that opinion because they know the business very well. So this could be a reason not to buy, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's mm -hmm. there's the, the the actual fraud cases or misrepresentation. That's why someone won't do it. There's the concern that that you don't know what you're doing. And so from a buyer's point of view, if there if this mechanism is removed, then they step back and say, well. If I have to pay all cash, I need to be ready for every contingency, every unknown, every possible risk. And the only thing left then for that buyer to do is adjust the one remaining lever, which is price. So there are different markets around the world where sellers generally will not engage in any kind of seller financing. And at the end of the day, the price ends up being lower because... Mm -hmm. They want, to work, they, they want to work in any possible outcome that might happen. And so for that buyer to be confident, the price ends up coming down. So the, the seller financing not only allows the buyer to have greater confidence in the deal, it's the tool that allows the seller to actually achieve the fair price. It, so a couple of questions. Is there yeah. a standard or recommendation of how much a seller should finance? And then the other question was going to be around how often are there issues that come up later down the line that affect yeah. that amount? Great questions. So what's, what's important to know is that this changes dramatically depending on where you're standing. So for people in the United States, there's something in the States called the Small Business Administration. And the SBA does something that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. They guarantee loans on the purchase price of a business. So they, they, they remove part of the risk for the bank that's making the loan. 
and they do it based on the purchase price of the business. And if, and if the business is a profitable business, a certain amount of that purchase price will be goodwill, which is just the difference between the purchase price and the tangible asset value of the stuff inside the business, inventory, equipment, all that kind of thing. The goodwill has no physical manifestation. We can't go and, and seize the goodwill. It's not a, a physical thing. It's the representation of value that's been created in the market. In every other country on earth, banks will lend against the tangibles, but not the goodwill because he can't repossess and auction off the goodwill. Okay? Mm -hmm. So my normal recommendation to people is that if you're going to borrow from a bank, you want to limit your borrowing to something that approximates the tangible asset value so that if there is some kind of major problem in the business after the purchase, you at least have this plan B of liquidating tangible materials to satisfy that banknote. Mm. I always say that the goodwill component is, is your benchmark for tying to a seller note. So there's, there's no value to the goodwill to anyone on earth, potentially, except the seller, right? Think about this. If I bought a business and I failed in the execution of the operation of the business and I owed money to the seller, the seller is the only one who can come back and fix the business because they know how to run it. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the seller is in a unique situation where they can actually make that loan and realize on the security of the goodwill component. So you asked about benchmarks. Most places I say the the good the, the seller note needs to approximate the goodwill. And that might mean that it's 30, 40, 50% of the transaction price. In the States with the SBA, what ends up happening is the market gets skewed because the SBA will, will underwrite or guarantee these notes that are sometimes 80 or 90% of the purchase price. Mm -hmm. And so here's where people get into trouble is the buyer will find a business. The seller knows that this SBA financing is available. The seller will then dig in their heels and say, I know you can borrow the money. I don't want to do any financing. And at the end of the day, the seller ends up holding a note for 5 or 10%. Right. So if there was some kind of serious issue with the business that the seller managed to distract you from being aware of, the seller is going to get 90 or 95% of their money on closing day. Is there really something tying that seller into that deal? You Not know? really, if it's only five no. to 10%, right? Yeah. But the buyer now has signed, the buyer has signed a note, they owe the money to the bank. And if things don't work out with them, they owe the bank. Right. Interesting, because the way you put it, it's like the risk has been shifted onto the buyer, whereas like I think the rationale behind it is to help more buyers by enabling more buyers to buy more businesses. That's probably why the SBA does it, right? I challenge that assumption, and here's why. If, if you look at any other market on earth, why is anyone financing cars? Why are car loans available? Is it to help, is it to help people buy cars? Well, it's because it's a secure asset, and if the seller, if the if the the bar the lender, um, if if the 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 borrower uh, stops spending, stops paying on that loan, they have mm -hmm. something physical that they can repossess and they can sell off to get repaid. Is that if a good you answer? Walk, if if you walk into a car dealership, they already have all of the lending solutions available, right? Because the availability of automobile financing helps people sell cars. Mm -hmm. 
and the availability of home loans help people sell houses. And so when you create an institution whose job it is to, to facilitate high leveraged acquisition loans for businesses, what you're doing is you're helping people sell businesses. Mm. And so, so it's a little bit of a controversial take, mm. um, but in looking at what happens in the States and in unfortunately speaking to people who've been put into bad positions because of it, it's, it's one of the things I like to shine the light on to make sure that people are aware of, because just because the SBA will guarantee a 90% loan in the States doesn't mean a buyer needs to go and take a 90% loan. Mm. You can still structure a deal that works for you and helps to protect your interests, even though you're going to end up maybe using a, an SBA 7A loan. Mm. Um, and so it sounds like what you're saying, even though a lot of your business is in the States, it sounds like the the way that the markets function outside of the States without the SBA is, would you say, is a, it functions more... Uh, well, it, holistically, it, or it, it's, it's a better functioning market. I, I would say that it's just an example of of a government program interfering with the functioning of a market. Mm. So it just it makes the outcomes show up a little differently. And and I think one of the biggest examples of that I was working with someone the other day who was looking at a, a nurse a greenhouse nursery business, mm-hmm. and I subscribed to these different databases of past sale transactions. And it was interesting because when I was looking in this database, I w- I'm able to see what a business sold for, where the business was, um, how much it sold for, what the sales, cash flow, et cetera, and the amount of sellers fi- seller financing that was involved in the deal. And these particular deals had very large seller notes, 40, 50, 60%. And I'm like, okay, well, if you listen to the common conversation that's happening you know, or in the world of buying a business that involves the SBA, you don't hear about those stories because because nobody's out selling that kind of deal. A lot of the conversation that you would run across online are bankers and brokers and everyone who's part of that industry. And they're talking about the tools of the trade and the available financing, et cetera. As soon as you have a deal that doesn't qualify or a buyer that doesn't qualify or something that puts them outside of that circle uh, for qualifying for that SBA financing, even in the states, they end up falling into this normal, this normal, um, you know, sort of way of doing it, which is simply, hey, business is risky. We can't find all the money. How are we going to put this deal together? Because I want to buy and you want to sell. So how are we going to work it out? And what invariably will happen, even without the help of someone like me, is a buyer will end up saying, look, this is the money I can get. And if that seller is motivated and they need to move on, and most small businesses go up for sale because of a pressing personal concern on the part of the seller, something in their life is forcing them to move on to something else, then they're going to say, well, you know what? If that's all you can do, we're going to have to work with that. And so then you get a down payment and the balance is paid over time. And the balance that's paid over time can take many forms. So we've been talking about seller notes. So if you have a fixed price for the business, and you end up with a note saying, I owe you this amount over this many years, maybe with interest. That's a very simple way of doing it. With the oncoming recession, for example, a lot of people are worried that a business they might buy perhaps will do poorly next year. And so then you open yourself up to all these other kinds of creative deal-making mechanisms like, I'll pay you a seller note, but if the sales drop below a certain level, I want certain offsets or 
certain maybe um, you know interest only payment periods, or I want some kind of mechanism that helps my cash flow if the business is affected by you know a downturn, or in the case of businesses that have had a huge increase in revenue in 2020 and 2021, you know have have they benefited from the whole pandemic situation, right? So we're seeing seller notes that are tied to future performance. You know, if the business reverts to its 2019 performance, then I don't have to pay this part, for example. Yeah. And and if you borrow the money from a bank and give it to the seller, then you lose the ability to employ any of these kind of creative strategies mm. to try to mitigate that risk on the buyer's part. And at the end of the day, if the buyers won't participate, there is no market. Because for a market to occur, you have to have a buyer and a seller. Up until you know a certain point when the interest rates started to be increased here recently, there was a lot of cheap money available, a lot of money chasing deals, and a lot of smart buyers who you know wanted to make a good deal for themselves might be outbid by someone who is you know a little more willing to to throw down cash to to acquire these businesses. But I think that has started to change in a big way here recently, especially with the interest rate changes. Yeah, you know, yeah. Now. Um... I'm sure this never happens with any of the clients that you work with, but how often after a transaction happens, do does something come up afterwards mm -hmm. that um, that might trigger one of those provisions that you're talking about there? So, so this is one of the neat things about structuring the deal this way. If a seller knows that part of the deal is to have a materially substantial amount of the deal financed through a seller note that has a clause in it that says this note subject to offset in the case of a material misrepresentation or undeclared liability, undiscovered liability or lien or whatever, um, then that seller knows that they're on the hook. That seller knows they're responsible for what they say. So that seller has an interest now in full disclosure mm. and they have an interest in the success of the buyer because if that buyer is going to make all those payments, they need to be successful in the business. Mm. And so this deal structure not only protects the buyer from risk and the seller allows the seller to get the maximum payment, it also ensures that the seller's interests are aligned with the buyer in as far as the success of the buyer mm. and the takeover and operation of the business. Encourages collaboration between them. Encourages the, yeah. the uh, you know, we often talk about a training and transition period. But I, but I also talk about the coaching that goes beyond that. Mm -hmm. You know, if you buy a business from someone and you owe them payments over the next five years, three years from now, if something happens in your business and you're looking for some sage advice, that person's taking your call. You still mm -hmm. owe them money, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Yeah. They, they want you to be successful. They don't want to come back and take it over. They want you to make the payments. And so a lot of the times these buyers and sellers come together for these deals. They work through the transition period together. The seller moves off, off into retirement or whatever their next thing is, but they usually end up staying in communication and many times they become friends. So to answer your question directly, when I was uh, had my business brokerage office open, I told you there were 36 transactions that occurred. In one instance, the buyer came back to me and said, look, the sales that he was talking about have not materialized. Mm. And I said, all right, so this is what you're going to do. You, you write him a letter. You say... This is why I'm not going to pay you anymore. It's up to him now to prove the things he told you were true. And you know what happened in that case, John? What happened? The seller never responded in any way. Hmm. Interesting. And so seller must have known something about sales that it was 
fluffing up saying were going to happen. Yeah, I I mm. think so. I mm. mean, um, if 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 he felt that, you know, he was being abused, he would have responded in some way. So mm. that kind of reaffirmed to me, like, yeah, like he knew he was representing something that maybe wasn't didn't have much in the way of substance. Mm. This is really fascinating. We're running short on time. I know we're, I'm watching the clock, but there's one thing I do want to ask about. So another client of ours, Todd Tasky, um, Second Bite Podcast, um, he does brokerage as well. Um, and he's, I think it's a different market than, than what you work with and a different model. Um, but he's a big fan of, the reason he called his podcast the Second Bite is because he's a big fan of, uh, you know, primarily in private equity, but, but businesses selling uh, their business to another business, retaining some equity or rolling over equity. And then um, a couple of years later, then that's sold all rolled together, much higher multiple. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that strategy and if that's something that you you see a lot of. So I don't see a whole lot of it in the in the space that I work at, but that kind of model would achieve much of what I'm talking about because the buyer in that case still gets access to the seller and the seller is still invested in the business because they still retain part of the ownership. Um, one of my clients in the last couple of years did a deal like that where they bought 60% of a business and the, the seller stayed on um, in a without an active management capacity, but they stayed on as a 40% owner. And it worked out really well. The, the seller knew the future prospects of the business were good. The fact that they wanted to retain part of it sort of reinforced that and demonstrated, you know, put their put your money where your mouth is kind of thing. Um, and the eventual plan is for the buyer to buy the whole thing, but they, I don't know if they've even set a timeline in that case, but it it would serve the same kind of purpose. And instead of using a debt instrument, they're using equity. The, the issue with the world of small business is that a lot of small businesses, um, are managed in a lifestyle fashion. So a lot of day-to-day decisions will be made, um, with respect to how the owner and their family get along and uh, what they want to do as far as tax planning. So I personally wouldn't want to own an equity stake in a lot of really small businesses because then you start to say, well, wait a minute, you, you went to a conference and you flew business class mm-hmm. and then yeah. you rented a fancy car. Yeah. Like you, So the business owner is living well. They know what they're doing. They're trying to reduce their tax obligation while enjoying some of the, the finer things in life. But as a minority owner of the stock of that company, my dividend stake is going to be cut. Right. Right. Right, right. And so, and and that's kind of the difference what happens in these small businesses. In in a larger firm, you have more of an orderly professional kind of management structure, uh, you know, policies, procedures, the way things are executed. Um, It's just a little bit different once you get into those bigger businesses. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Final question. And this has been so much fun to talk about this. Um, But final question I'm a big fan of gratitude, big fan of expressing Mm. gratitude, especially to, uh, those who've helped you along the way in your journey. Um, a lot of people might mention family and friends, but really what I love to hear about is the peers and contemporaries, however you want to define that, because you have had the author hat, you've had the speaker hat, you've had the consulting hat, content creator, and of course, business brokerage, entrepreneur. Who would you shout out? Who would you want to thank? Well, you know, I, I think there'd be three people. Uh, the first would be Ed Pendarvis. He's a guy who started uh, Sunbelt Business Brokers back in the 60s. Uh, I was fortunate enough that I was able to start learning the business brokerage trade when Ed was still involved in education and teaching. 
the second would be Greg Kells. He is in Ottawa, business broker who's been in the business for a long time. I learned a lot from, from uh, Greg as well. And the third would be Ted Leverett, who has been in the world of helping people buy businesses since the 1970s. And uh, I, I talk to Ted frequently and I've learned a lot from him as well. So those would probably be the three that have really helped me a lot um, in, in learning the industry and learning deal making and you know, creating that foundation that's allowed me to iterate and innovate upon those ideas uh, and come up with some of the some of the notions and ideas that I share with people. That's great. Well, David, I love how much content you put out there into the world. Thank you for doing that. That's really valuable. I encourage everyone to go check out your YouTube channel, your books. Where should people go? Where's the best spot to learn more about you? Yeah, the easiest place to go is davidcbarnett.com. It's my blog site and, you know, all the links to books and the online programs I have and podcasts and YouTube channel and all that stuff is there. And uh, I would particularly highlight that if you're interested in this whole idea of buying and selling and managing small businesses, sign up for my email list. I You can choose what topics interest you, but I put out an email every day. That's either a story, an idea, a topic uh, that relates to buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. Excellent. David, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Smart Business Revolution podcast with John Corcoran. Find out more at smartbusinessrevolution.com. And while you're there, sign up for our email list and join the revolution. 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 And be listening for the next episode of the Smart Business Revolution podcast.